KZSU Stanford. This is the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino. This is a show about economics, ethics, morality, housing, and more. Today in the program, Gregory Stevens. He was a minister at Palo Alto's First Baptist Church until someone, an anonymous tipster, sent off a packet of unsavory uh, tweets. Unsavory tweets insofar as they criticized Palo Alto for not actually doing very much to address real social social justice issues. He, uh, in a statement, says, I believe Palo Alto is a ghetto of wealth, power, and elitist liberalism by proxy, further outraging many in the community. Today, he talks about what he preached and more. Let's just get into it. Uh, welcome, Gregory. Thank you. Yeah, so... Uh, Reading through this, well, I, this is a story kind of blew up in the last week. I think one of my favorite uh, comments. This was I, I went on like some way right wing take on it, which is funny because mm-hmm. they hate Palo Alto, so they feel like it's just you know they're the, like everyone's the bad guys here. Mm. Uh, but the response in the comment section was, "How much of a commie do you have to be when Palo Alto isn't woke enough?" <laughs> Again, how much of a how much of a commie? Commie. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Which is just like they have this like imagine Palo Alto is like some you know way way left <laughs> you know utopia oh, out yeah. there. I mean Palo Alto. Uh, it's the more you spend in it, you realize how crazy that is. So yeah, what what brought you Palo Alto in the first place? So I graduated seminary um, as a gay guy who's already a leftist, and so I was a part of the uh, Disciples of Christ Church. Yeah. They paid for my scholarship, and um, I was ready to go to a Disciples of Christ Church. And then it was like, well, we're going to have to send you some like strange area that you never want to live in where there's like two gay people, but they this one church has a rainbow flag, so you'd be good there. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of disheartening, the fact that I went to seminary thinking... Uh, there'd be more churches that were open and affirming and it's liberal California and it's LA and there weren't many or there weren't many that were hiring I guess you could say it's not like there's a a lot of openings Um, and so then I started looking elsewhere I was like where I want to break away from the disciples of Christ I'm not big into the denomination so I don't care that much I already got my scholarship but uh, (laughs) so I can move on and so one of my friends who got me to California Trip Fuller he was a progressive Baptist which to me was like wait those are contradictory terms. What do you mean? I grew up a Southern Baptist. There's nothing progressive about it. Um, but he kind of introduced me to this whole different world. And he had l- lost his job in LA doing what he was doing. And he was applying at churches and he's more of an academic. And so this church here, First Baptist Palo Alto, couldn't necessarily pay for him, his wife, his three kids to exist in this crazy area. Yeah. And so he was like, well, my buddy just graduated and he would be perfect. He's single, he's fired up, he's ready to do stuff. Yeah. And so as a young person without a job, without a lot of prospects, I didn't think twice. It was, of course, I'm going to the first job that's going to pay me, give me housing, pay for my food and honor the fact that I'm a leftist and that's okay. Yeah. Um, and then I got here and it was a little different than I expected. So, I mean, just I, just at first, I mean, like, you know, leftist baptism, you're, you're surprised that Baptists could be leftists. What, what, what is that like? How many, like, how much of the Baptists are, I guess, open to not just being this, this traditional Bible-thumping crowd? So there's a, there's kind of two main lefty, or not even, liberal groups. Sure. And so well, that's, that's, that's the... That's a start when you consider, yeah. like, yeah, the Deep South kind of flavor. Oh, I mean, okay, so I went to, this is a funny story, I went to the annual American Baptist 
a meeting. You have a, a missions meeting every, I think, two years. And so it's an annual conference. And I go, and we're sitting at a table with other pastors. And one of the guys tries to convert me to Jesus and, like, save my soul because I'm gay, because yeah. I was talking about my sex life to the person to my left or something like that. And it was like, where the hell am I? <laughs> what, what the heck is going on? And so within the denomination, the American Baptist Church, there is a kind of small left-leaning group. And so our region, the Evergreen region, um, is not actually... Typical regions are like the North, the South, the East, the West. Ours is like, well, we have a church in North Carolina. We have a church in Washington. We have a church, but we're still a region. Um, and even that is just kind of progressive liberalism and not um, radical or leftist yeah. in any way. Um and then there's the Alliance of Baptists, which are kind of the most left-leaning Baptists, but they're less uh, centrally organized, they're less of a denomination, and they they more so support pastors, and they um, host conferences and stuff like that. But that, the Alliance is kind of the left-leaning group that does really good, awesome yeah. work. I mean, so I guess the central thing is it's kind of crazy that Christianity is you know, can be perceived as being you know right leaning, you know, supporting the hierarchies and all this. When you know the message of Jesus is radical anarchism. It's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I mean, just how do you explain the fact that there isn't you know more of an idea? How like how do people? read Jesus hmm. and, you know, look at what he says about poverty and about living your life and say, oh, this is a message about <laughs> just, you know, getting yours. That's what blows my mind is the thing that bothers me about church is every Sunday I wake up and I preach a message of love and justice and compassion and I have to use the scriptures to defend it and people still, their minds still aren't changed. Yeah. And I don't know what else to do. It's like, you see the suffering, your religion tells you to respond to it. What, what in the world? I mean, part of it comes from this, like, history of colonialism and the history of the Spanish Empire and the history of, even before that, Caesar taking and adopting the tradition. Yeah. I wrote this paper recently about um, decolonizing Christianity. And it, the question I wanted to ask was, can we use the master's tool to destroy the master's house? And one of the things I was reading, um, super nerdy Deleuze, um, he was saying that that war is typically assumed to be like the tool of the master, that that's the weapon of the elite. And he was saying, no, it's actually a weapon of self-defense that people were using, marginalized people, oppressed people, peasant people, hill people were trying to escape or fight back. And so they were using this tactic to not be controlled. And so then I take that with Christianity as Christianity was the tool of the weak, of the peasant, of the uh, working class, of women, of trans people, of black people, all the people that are marginalized today. That was where it began. And 300 years later, Caesar takes it up and becomes the master tool yeah and so it's like hell yeah we can use the master's tool because it wasn't really their tool always yeah it is now it is now in the empire and it has been in the empire's tool for a while um but there's a little bit of hope there it's kind of old it's 1800 years ago that it wasn't the master's tool but hey maybe we can tap into that I mean, it takes a significant amount of double think to just take it in and say yes i'm living my life the good way and this is what I believe. I mean, it's. I mean, I think everyone wants to believe they're living life right, hmm. even when things are really, really wrong. Hmm. Uh, so when you go to Palo Alto, and I guess you're soured on the fact that this is not the promised land. Well, what, 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 what do you first see that made you just start to say something's wrong here? It's what I didn't see, uh, and so. Palo Alto is this beautiful oasis with trees and beautiful homes. Um, and it looks like local shops. But then when I lived there for a little longer, I started to recognize that just under the surface, there was so much more going on. So like the tech world is idolized. Steve Jobs and um, what's the owner of Steve um, Apple? Oh, uh, uh, Cook. Yeah, Cook now. He These these types of people are glorified as if they're the most amazing thing in the world. Um 
But when you look at their businesses and what their business practices are and how that affects the world, it's not good. It's not beautiful. And so there's like this abstraction that happens. Uh, the same thing that happens in economics where you talk about markets and you talk about all these numbers and spreadsheets and you never realize that you're talking about human beings, the environment, people, places, plants. Uh, the same thing happens in Palo Alto where all of the businesses are destroying the world, but just over there, just yeah. far out. Before it was East Palo Alto, probably in the 50s and 60s, it was gentrification in East Palo Alto. But then it was gentrification to Mexico. It was gentrification to, you know, the global south or wherever. But we live in this bubble, in this Palo Alto beautiful bubble, because all of the oppression and all of the marginalization is pushed out. So you can't see it. But the moment you scratch that surface, you realize, no, wait, these people are cleaning your offices just in the middle of the night. And so when I drive by and your lights are on, it's because someone's cleaning. It's all these Mexican women pushing babies around that's not the mother of the child this whole time i thought how diverse of a cool neighborhood that's the slay or the indentured servant that these rich people are using to um raise their child while they go make millions while they own the means of production while they own the ability to create knowledge and create a society while the marginalized just raises their child yeah, I mean, it's, it's the old Upson Sinclair, Sinclair quote. Uh, you know, it's very hard for someone to understand something when their uh, paycheck depends upon them not understanding it. I mean, around here, talk about the city at large, they can talk about how, you know, the tech companies and I, the cutthroat, winner-take-all economics of everything is destroying the community and just it's basically making life really hard to live but they pay the bills. <laughs> when I, so when I first got here, my task was for a year to research, figure out what the community is like. You're not from here, figure it out. Uh, and so I started joining like activist community teams. And one of them was a climate action team. And every uh, week we would talk about kind of those like spiked graphs where you can see that the climate is changing or we would talk about reducing um, our climate footprint individually and taking shorter showers and buying Teslas and stuff like this. But one time I came to the class or came to the meeting after reading a book on socialism and asked, well, why aren't we asking these different questions? This is all it's totally new to me, so I don't have the answers, but why aren't we asking these questions? And one of the guys goes, well, we made this wealth that we're now retired on through the capitalist system, and we don't want to turn our backs on it because that's how we're sitting clean and pretty. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's, that's destroying the world. That's the most <laughs> obvious thing that's destroying the world. The, the whole logic of um, infinite growth on a finite planet, the whole logic of making profits increase and only looking at profits and not looking at people, the whole logic of hierarchy and domination, the whole logic of that is totally countercultural to an ecosystem or to symbiotic relationships or to what we see in the biosphere. Yeah. I mean, I, every, I think one of the craziest things I saw, this is a few months ago, do you see the Paulo, Paulo Alto Weekly poll about are you middle class? Here no, I didn't see that. Yeah, so they, they asked uh, 250 <laughs> people in Paulo Alto for announced results, are you middle class? And of those of people who responded, 98% said that they're middle class or working class. 2% said they're upper class. What? And these are people making up to 400,000. And <laughs> 400,000, yeah, and, and it's just the thing. No one wants to say, says, oh, look at those fat cats. Look mm. at those people. I, I mean, even people say, oh, you know, we got to reform capitalism. They, they say, like, let's look at those guys. What? People never want to look at the fact, are you really complicit? That was my favorite part about all these interviews is uh – the liberally minded people would always say, well, you do mean them, right? Like you're critiquing those liberals, not me, not these liberals. And I'm like, no, no, like liberalism, the whole concept is what I'm critiquing. And so you're very right. They would, but they were often, even in the interview and even in this like ruthless critique I was trying to lay down, they were still like, well, it's those people. It's not me. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that all of us are reproducing this 
capitalist system yeah. and that literally to stop it we don't need a massive revolution we just need to stop producing those logics <laughs> i mean i you, you can say there are there are parts where you don't see effects butt heads so much i think palo alto is the t- epicenter of everything that is broken and is not working coming to the most i just feel there's so much fighting here and i feel the system it, it makes victims everybody because everybody has to fight here. I feel bad. You have people here who are like high school students growing up in Palo Alto, and they feel like their own community is squeezing them out or say, or you have to make massive bank to to stay here. I mean, it, I it just kind of nuts the fact that we say there's no way we can all survive together. We mm. have to <laughs> you have to fight and win and compete and come out ahead or you know, you're an unperson. Yeah, I think that that myth of competition is one of the contradictions of capitalism and that that just doesn't make sense. One of the things I like about the scriptures is the um, in Acts 2, the spirit falls for the first time. We're celebrating Pentecost right now. We're in the scenes of Pentecost. The spirit falls and everyone speaks each other's language. So there's like outbreak of diversity and then everyone shares their belongings. Mm. So 2,000 years ago, this message, this commie message was happening. The first thing that happened when the spirit felt, meaning do you have the spirit of God in you if you aren't sharing your possessions? Yeah. Um, if you aren't embracing diversity beyond black people working in your institution, but being in solidarity with black and oppressed people around the world. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a myth that competition and that capitalism is the only way. And I think that it's not. I think that cooperation and collective ways of being are far more... Um, conducive to life on earth yeah and and you talk about what do we feel everyone deserves and saying you at least deserve to live to live and have a community and not just feel like you're you know just forced out and we see you know east palo alto the fact that we are unable to figure out how to live together people are just like oh yeah you are the you know you are the waste product of everything. Get out of here. Well, and and people, for all they can say, like, oh, this is a sanctuary state. We're a sanctuary city. Where the hell are these people going to live? Hmm. You know? that's East Palo Alto started as like a green utopia. At the turn of the century, it's let's make this beautiful um, environmental space where we can uh, grow herbs and grow plants and vegetables and live in communes. And after the war, there was an influx of uh, white suburbia that moved in. And then when African American American in the 60s tried to move into the neighborhood. Um, he was offered by his neighbors, I think it was like six grand. I have all of this in a paper I wrote. Yeah. Um, it was. I think it was like six grand. And he said, no, this is my neighborhood. I just escaped from the South yeah. as a refugee to California. Uh, I don't want to leave. I just got here. And so then there was that white flight of, well, if you aren't going to leave, then we're going to leave. Yeah. And then you get this development of black and brown bodies in, in the east side of Palo Alto. I'm not 100% sure when the city's actually divided. I'm sure it's right around then when black and brown bodies started to, to, to move in. Yeah. But yeah, that was one of the most shocking things is it's not only a different city, it's in a different um, county. It's, mm. I'm pretty sure it's in the county above us and not in Santa Clara. Is I think that, it's in San, San Mateo. Mateo. I think it might be. I mean, it's that sort of silliness yeah. that shook me up when I first moved here. And so when I was preaching, I would often talk about Jesus coming from... Uh, places of poverty but instead of naming those first century places we're like no east palo alto it's it's yeah. right there i was talking to someone yesterday who says he was in palo alto in the 80s and he never seen anything so explicit of anybody hmm. who was dark-skinned driving down the road was pulled over hmm. just as a start and i mean that's the way people wanted to live and well this is what's scary too is how are we creating a green capitalist utopia when black and brown bodies can't even bike on the 
on the paths because they can't afford a Palo Alto. You couldn't afford a bike at a Palo Alto bike shop, yeah. let alone to come here um, and bike around in these beautiful neighborhoods. Yeah. Or I, as a middle class guy with almost a PhD, still can't afford to live. I've got all the white guy credentials. <laughs> I'm even a Christian, but I still can't succeed in this world yeah. or in this neighborhood. Um, and Teslas are not on my radar. And, you know, things like that are just not. And if I can't exist, that means. As much as I distaste the police, that means the police can't live here and teachers can't live here. And I know that in this city battle that our church had, some of the city council members don't even live in the city mm. because they, too, probably can't afford to live in the city. Some of them are coming from Oakland that we're interacting with our community. So it's like the people who are managing the city aren't even able to live here. Yeah. I mean, and I think the thing that kind of makes <laughs> I feel that if everyone's explicit of saying, yeah, we're the bad guys, we got all the stuff. You know, suck it. I mean, there's something really, like, refreshing about that compared to the fact mm. that it's like we're in a green, inclusive place, rainbow flag, everybody's welcome here. But then you support all these things that saying you're very, very uh, fine with the idea that you're filtering out for only the extremely lucky and extremely well off mm. to have any chance of living here. Hmm. I mean, it's just, would you think you'd like it better if people owned up to the fact that they, uh, or do you think it's it's good that people feel that they're good? Do you think they can be turned better when they at least know that's a good thing? A lot of my friends talk about moving back to the South, because in the South, it's explicit. The South is, acts more like Donald Trump. They'll yeah. just say what they think, throw it out there. It'll be pretty racist. It'll be pretty extreme. But in California, and specifically San Francisco, there's this like PC culture, this liberal culture, where they're probably up the same exact war machine, yeah. but they're doing it in the name of justice and peace and egalitarian queer love is around the world or something with rainbow flags at the at the pride march with Apple and all of these corporations. You know. um, yeah, to me, that's that's terrifying. That's one of the things I was scared about Hillary Clinton is that with all the coups that she's creating and all the different bombs that she's dropped on other places, she, she she's an abstraction. She she can make neoliberal empire look pretty. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump doesn't make it look pretty, but that, I kind of like that. I mean, it's terrifying. It's gross. It's destroying the world. It's not good in that sense, but it sure is easier to dialogue um, with people about his atrocities than it is about her atrocities, simply because just like Palo Alto, they're a little more hidden. I mean, but will people remember? I guess when I, you know, when the election happened last year, I thought, okay, people are finally going to see the hypocrisy of what they allowed under Obama because he was the good guy. Say, okay, now people are going to say, oh boy. Look what I missed. But no one's really doing that. <laughs> People are very, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, there's the one bad guy, you get rid of him, you get rid of the other bad Republicans, everything's fine now. And I think that's what people want. People want to do the least amount to feel like everything's fixed. That was one of my favorite things I learned when he got elected is all of my white liberal activist friends in Palo Alto wouldn't even say Trump's name. They had his number or they had some weird way of like obscuring who he was. And they would walk around mopey and depressed and so sad. And when I asked a black friend, what do you think about this? They said, since we were robbed off Africa, this system has not worked. We have not liked it. Yeah. This is not going to like th this problem has always this problem of white supremacy, of a dictator, of a totalitarian leader. This is the name of America. This is what the United States was founded upon. Yeah. Uh, this isn't new. For white elitist liberals, it's new because they're not used to receiving certain attacks. or They like good, cordial, civilized language. Yeah. Uh, David Graeber has this great book, Possibilities, where he kind of traces where manners come from. And manners are a total place of power and privilege. And that trickled down. So now we all want to act like the elite by uh, having certain table manners or whatnot. And you see this with my tweets is because I use the word... 
everyone, excuse me, because I use this word, everyone freaked out rather than wanting to police or they wanted to police my language rather than do anything about homelessness or social justice or about black and brown bodies being removed from the neighborhood or about police violence or anything like this. I mean, that was a crazy thing. I mean, so this so just to get into it was an anonymous packet sent into city council uh, and it is it's weird to look at because it's someone who like apparently printed out your tweets, cut them out, scanned them back in. It was old school looking, yeah. It's, it's weird. It looks deranged. Uh, but it's just any time that you said a bad word or, I mean, expressed anger at the system that you're seeing in Palo Alto, but just basically so many things. It's like, wow, that offended you? It's mm. like, wow. It's like, how, like, what world are you living in? And then it's like, oh, and let's get rid of this this person. It's like, let's fix the problem. It's like, wow. Well, what kind of mind? What blew me away was that the mayor supported that idea, was that if I can come down on this young guy who's speaking out of frustration, who's speaking out of pain and suffering and echoing the voices of those who are suffering in this neighborhood, um, to just shut that guy up and to, to get him out of here and to call him bad and gross um, is definitely more effective than to address the actual issues. Um, I thought it was funny to see certain anarchist and leftist po- political things that I posted that they had, you know, there's a difference between, between saying I hate the police and come read about anarchist politics. Yeah. And they were even scared of that. Yeah. I had one shirt that said it was the band Pussy Riot. Yeah. And it just says riot with a feminist fist. Yeah. And that too was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, one was just it was the word socialist, and they said like so like this is one of the offensive tweets that you said. It's like wow, what's up with that? That's one of my favorite things in in the South. That would happen more, but when it happens here, it's strange because more people are aware that socialism doesn't mean a dictator, but means collectivized work and participatory planning and democracy, real democracy. Well, it kind of means that you don't become just obscenely rich for no good reason. And I mean, that's the lifeblood here. Everything from kind of the VC funders to the big tech companies to people whose skills just happen to be you know really worthful. But then everybody else who owns a home they bought for $100,000 is worth $3 million now is the median price in Palo Alto. And they feel like, I deserve that. That's what sucks about uh, the Bay Area is it's at the forefront of capitalism and radical politics. To me, when I first learned about the ills of capitalism, it was about private property and kind of this myth of private property. And what I'm now recently learning in ecological studies is about biropiracy. And so the idea that you could patent and you could have the intellectual private property um, of a seed or something like this. And so Monsanto, this multinational, miserable corporation, will go and take someone's land, buy it from them or something, and then have them work on their land just like feudalism. Um, And then if their little biopirated seed floats over into somebody else's plot, it's now Monsanto's. Yeah. Um, But they're making tons of money off of this. And I know a lot of friends here in Palo Alto who went to Stanford, made some tiny little tech part that they could patent. And every computer or every car or everything that we use in this society needs at least one. And so now they're making all of this money off of the information that they created through their professor's knowledge, their friends who studied with them, their parents who raised them, their preschool who raised them. My sister, or my my best friend, lives in New Orleans, and she works with uh, inner city kids who are trying to get into college. And she helps them navigate uh, um, getting funding and applying and all that. And she talks about how these kids don't even their parents didn't go to college, so they don't even know what FAFSA is. They don't know what online apply. They don't know what any of this is. 
And then I think about myself, this middle class kid whose mom wasn't very supportive when I was growing up. And so I had knowledge of those things. I didn't exactly have the mom who was going to type it for me. I didn't have the one who was going to send it in for me, but I had knowledge of it. And then you have these Stanford kids whose moms literally sat there with them from day one, from preschool, because they could afford it to move them through the system to get them into this elite school. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but to me, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's when you talk about people uh, saying like, you know, capitalism, I feel there's like two flavors. People will re- defend it as one big institution while kind of in their mind, they have like this quaint little, it's a wonderful life, mom and pop version of, oh, it's a good thing if you, you know, build a table and sell it to somebody. And we're all just honest people. I was talking to someone who was like, afterwards, it's like, you know, it's like, you need to read some Adam Smith. And, you know, <laughs> when I bought this house, I bought used clothes hmm. because it shows that I scrimped and saved and the system works. And you talk about like, it's, even if you're talking about, if I build a table, I should, you know, someone should, you know, pay me extra for the fact that I did the work of building a table. And that's on its face. It's not the message of Jesus, you know, on Mm -hmm. its face, but it is not as crazy as saying, because I quarantine land from everybody else, push people out, and then I patent living forms, things that obviously belong to the the public domain. Mm. It's like, this is mine now and I get profits. I mean, that's one extra level of just insanity. And I think that's what's, you know, really, really, I think, just just at a crazy head here in Palo Alto. I think that it's that too, it, that, that key idea of you can do all of the shorter showers and have all of the um, female and person of color diversity in your elite staff. And none of that is going to change the very system that's destroying the world, that's based on hierarchies and domination, that's based on land uh, destruction, that's based on extrapolating resources from the land endlessly. You, you, It doesn't matter how many reused grocery bags you used if BP can continue to dump 300 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico without a bat of an eye. When Rex Tillerson is the former Secretary of State and he's the largest CEO of one of the largest... Well, he left this month, but yeah. The new guy's not much better. Not much better. Actually worse. But the mere fact that people could blame climate change on individuals as opposed to recognizing that's a systemic problem is mind-blowing to me. And they're profiting off of all of it, which is even more terrifying. Well, people don't think in systems. People think of the fact that, like, it's about personal, if you try, if you are a good person. And I mean, I guess the message of Jesus, it like taken to really feel like you follow it, it it makes you a bit, you know, a bit crazed. It feels like it's something which is impossible to live up to. It's a fact you own nothing. You, you know, you take nothing. You give everything away. You don't even like it's, I mean, I'd say uncharitably, it's not that different than the kind of hippie anthem of just saying like, but I mean, I feel like a lot of those people kind of get the free riders of just like, oh, everyone's going to take care of me. But the Jesus message is like, just no matter what, even if it means certain death to yourself, do the right thing and help everyone else out and think of yourself last. And that isn't the beginning of how people interpret it. Yeah, no. And I think that that's key that Jesus's message is about our liberations being bound up in each other's liberations. And I think that the myth of liberal freedom is that my libera- if I'm free and I'm doing all these things and I've succumbed or come past all of my individual psychological and family and social problems, then life is good. And I don't necessarily need to worry about all these people. And I don't recognize how my life is actually the one that's impoverishing them rather than them just suddenly being poor somehow. Uh, but no, to me, that's totally Jesus's message is how do we I, well, I think it's a prefigurative and a utopian and a, I mean, he calls it the kingdom of God. And to me, the kingdom of God, 
or the queerdom of God or the commonwealth of God is a utopic vision, but it's what's always drawing us towards that vision of love and equality and acceptance. And we are probably never going to get there, but that's kind of the point is when we think we're there, we go, wait, 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 we've missed this, this and that. Let's keep working towards it. It's absolutely a lack of complacency. You know, no matter when you fix things, you're never going to say, oh, we fixed it. There's always more things to drive towards. It's a process you're always going to be getting there. I mean, I guess I was, I was listening to uh, you know uh, folks talk the other week about let's talk about the injustices about racial covenants in the Bay Area in the 50s and how we fixed it and let's have a march to celebrate it. And like everyone wants to believe all the injustices are in the past. We fix them and let's give ourselves a couple cheers to when, say we fixed it. No one wants to say there's still a lot more to be done. When I was growing up, I, we learned about the civil rights movement through black and white uh, TVs uh, or images of Martin Luther King. Yeah. And when I was, I moved to California and I went to one of my first Black Lives Matters marches and uh, I looked around and I went, holy crap, we didn't fix this. This is literally the exact same. I'm watching police brutally beat up people simply for marching and saying, we matter, Black yeah. Lives Matter. Before, they just had signs that said, I'm a man. And now their signs say Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's, that's not much of a progression in social, as a society. Um, and, and you talk about like housing wealth is a major thing that middle class people get wealth from. And talk about white you know, wealth in the investment of your home versus black wealth. I mean, black wealth is trailing towards zero. Mm. And here in Palo Alto, you have people who explicitly went on a racist housing system. They get in and now it's worth median $3 million. And they don't feel that they're complicit with the racism that put money in their pockets. Well, it's the same vision that people have of capitalism, that it fell from the sky, like the Bible might have fallen from the sky or something. And it's just this magical system that's not socially or historically located, that didn't come and grow out of colonialism. I mean, Donald Trump, on my way here... Donald Trump said this, Together there is nothing Americans can't do. Absolutely nothing. He told this to the U.S. Naval Academy. In recent years and even decades, too many people have forgotten that truth. They've forgotten their, that our ancestors trounced an empire, tamed a continent, and triumphed over the worst evils in history. America is the greatest fighting force for peace, justice, and freedom in the history of the world. We have become a lot stronger lately. We are not going to apologize for America. We are going to stand up for America. I mean, that's the that's the you could say the conservative message, but really the consensus message: the people who do well, the people with merit. I mean, Silicon Valley is the meritocracy is its driving mm. anthem. Those are the people who deserve to succeed, and th- and those are the people that activists are supposedly supposed to go to to ask their authority, to ask for their blessing, and to ask for their money. <laughs> My activism is not going to be, how do I convert a bunch of white rich people? Mm. I'm 28 and I've already learned all this stuff. I sure as heck know that those people have access to this information just like I do. It's their choice to not see it. Yeah. If I interact with poor people, trans people, queer people, black people, and I tell them a critique of capitalism, they say, duh, get on our team, start yeah. fighting with us. Yeah. And don't stand in front, push the bus, fill the bus with gas, help us fight this fight that we've been fighting for 500 plus years. I mean, in, in Jesus, he he supported and hung out with the losers and the people who screwed up. And like in, in everyone, and this is his message, everyone is equal, no matter if you are the people who succeed or if you're the people who lack skills or just do like or just screw up in a number of ways well that was one of the hardest things about preaching in palo alto is how do you preach about a homeless jew who's calling people to sell their possessions
Christians, who literally says it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven uh, than it is for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. Uh, his first sermon is that he's literally come to um, send the mighty home. His mother's magnificat, but when he was born, before he was born was that, I'm going to send the proud and mighty away. The whole message is about bubble up politics, about organizing from the bottom, about working with the poor. Um, and of course, what happens, rather than getting his tweets photographed and sent in, he just gets nailed to a cross <laughs> and shut up. Yeah. Rather than dealing with the fact that Samaritans are abused, rather than dealing with the fact that people are going hungry and all of this power and centralization of wealth is growing at the exact same time, well, we'll just nail him to a cross and call it, a, call it the end. Um, I think that that's what the state does. That's what city councils do is they build crosses and they nail you to them as opposed to trying to help people get off of them or stop nailing people or places or plants to crosses. You find some stupid bylaw to to wrap you up on. I mean, in this case, they started saying like they enforce the existing R1 zoning laws. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the lifeblood of Palo Alto is it's, 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 it's exclusive exclusionary zoning. And so that church has been there way before any R1 ever happened. Yeah. And, uh, before any houses were really built around it. And in the 70s, we were trying to do like a parking lot or something, and the city said no. So a lot of the history that the city had with the church was that they kept us from being able to um, provide better parking or provide, I don't know, some way to ease up the neighborhood on the extra cars. Um, But I don't know. My quote was in the paper that I have no idea how it could be so rich that you'd hate a little girl's choir, which I specifically remember a creepy old man from the neighbor one of the houses around with his video camera on the church property filming the girls singing yeah supposedly to see how loud they were but my god if you were to go anywhere with a camera as a 50 year old man and just start filming young women something's off well, I mean, and, and you talk about what is community, what are community spaces. Here in Palo Alto, I mean, people, even before this, this broke, people were criticizing this very action in city council about uh, how much activity could happen in churches and other community spaces, maybe limited to like seven times a year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it beca- it's just the idea. Everything is becoming privatized into your own home. And then the only thing that's public is the roads you drive on. Mm-hmm. But then you go to places and you want to make sure that there's nothing. Nothing which kind of belongs to the community. Well, it's extreme alienation. When I was trying to get Palo Altans to engage and work with other with people who are different than them, it was so hard. One because they're so far away; they've already pushed them out of the neighborhood. So you have to get in a car and drive. I don't have a car, so we'd have to get in their car and drive. Um, and then you're literally going on like poverty tourism. Yeah. Um, and so it's very hard to get this wealthy enclave to be in solidarity with poor people if they won't even be in solidarity with the community center that's propping up a lot of liberal ideas. It's not exactly radical. They might have one radical guy on staff, but a rainbow flag and an earth flag isn't radical. Those are just normal things. Um, But the fact that we're trying to create community in that space, that we're trying to put people together, bring people together, rather than perpetuate this idea of uh, capitalist competition and alienation, where people are being removed from each other, where relationships are being moved onto, onto screens and whatnot. Like trying to really draw people in and create community. And that is not okay in this town. I mean, and, and there's two things here. You could say that you can really criticize the kind of gradualism of a, of a liberal idea of saying we're going to slowly move towards a better world. I mean, at least you're moving in a better direction. And if you're going the right way, you're getting there. I mean, here, I don't think that anyone's even willing to point themselves in the right direction and say, what do we need to do? We need to make greener trash cans on the side of the road. We need to basically, you know, have a, a, a 
a flower display that shows that we stand with Black Lives Matter. You know, it's like do something that's completely completely meaningless. It's never going to say the fact that we have basically just opportunities squeezed out and given only to a very few people who just get everything. And so many people have no chance. Let's not even work on reforming this in any minor way. Let's just go in a completely orthogonal direction. When I hosted one of the first events, so I, I try to create an interfaith and multi-ethical community. So yeah. like atheists, Jews, Jains, Sikhs, Baha'is, we're all together. And one of the first meetings, I was like, okay, well, this is a justice group. We're trying to make our faith and our ethics action. We aren't just going to sit here and stroke each other's egos. And so what are some of the things we should do? One of the wealthiest people in the room, and I mean multimillionaire, yeah. his response was, I'm so tired of being told that the world is broken and hurt, and I don't want another call to action. <laughs> What the heck? As if we were just going to sit here and live in this little bubble and act like nothing's wrong with the world? Yeah. No religion says that. Every religion says be engaged in the world. It might say it totally different, but it says be engaged with the world. It doesn't say go close and plug your ears to the world and sit in a room by yourself or eat eat with other rich people. Nothing to do with that. So what what do you think about the differences in different, you know, Christian faiths of, you know, acts versus the fact that you don't need to do anything. It's about being saved. And then you can go, you know, make your make yours, do whatever. It's about what happens, you know, in a completely personal level. That's the most terrifying part about religion. And it's easy even as an activist within Christianity to get um, caught up in the world of the mental game of does God exist and how, if God exists, what is God like? But at some point you recognize that conversation can only go so far. God is love. Okay, now let's do something about it. Yeah. Um, and so to me, I think that Christianity does need to be shaken up a little and be brought back into its material side. Um, because if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and all of his body parts and blood and bones and everything went back together, or you don't at all, like I don't, you still believe that Jesus is calling you when he, when he rises to go be resurrection people in the world, to go raise the dead, heal the sick, and feed the hungry, yeah. which is material. It has nothing to do with charity, philanthropy, or praying in your head about gun violence or something. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the thing that I think is it's an unfortunate, I think, misunderstanding. You talk about, like, what is happening to young people? Like, atheism is, is rising. It's because there's, like, two teams— there is the Bible thumpers, and then there's the kind of good secular people. But, I mean, the message of Jesus is radical leftism. <laughs> that's, and, why, that's why I like it, yeah. because it's this book that, in my mind, I grew up a Southern Baptist, hyper-conservative fundamentalist. And all of a sudden, I can look through these pages and go, not only was I reading it wrong, but I can use the tool of the conservative master against them. Yeah. Because now I've got these scriptures, and they're giving me life. I mean, when the city came down on me, when the mayor's like, oh, what a terrible pastor, and... When the neighbors who aren't religious, who don't come to the community, seem to understand what morality is for a Christian pastor, um, I was depressed. Yeah. I didn't want to go outside. Someone sent me a scripture verse that uh, our battle is against the principalities and powers of the world in Ephesians. And I was like, oh, wait, this is my tradition. And it's in the book that yeah. they're trying to use against me. I sat there and read a couple. I'm, I'm not a big wake up and read your Bible kind of guy, but that's exactly what I did. And I got so fired up. I started sending out emails to different newspapers to say, let me tell my story now because I've got a homeless Jew Jesus on my side yeah. and they don't. So let's use this tool against them. I mean, I, at, at, a big, at a big level, how do you tie people together with a message saying nation shouldn't hold us apart, everyone Every person has dignity and is equal. I mean, the inherent message of, of anybody who believes in right and wrong, it's, an, it's 
almost inherently a religious kind of idea that right and wrong matters. It's true, and we need to respect that. And I think that the fact that religion is getting a bad name, I think a lot of people who are atheist and secular aren't really anything but. They really believe in right and wrong. And it's a, there's a hell of a message you could look at if you just look at the Gospels. Well, that's what's scary about Palo Alto, too, is what what's right for Palo Alto and what's wrong for Palo Alto. Um, there's this myth that radicals are all these militant, violent people. I, I personally don't know of a milit- above-ground, militant, violent, radical group within the Bay Area at all. Hmm. Uh, but every time you talk to a progressive liberal Christian in Palo Alto and you say anything about Jesus being a revolutionary, him being radical, it comes down to the it's bad to do violence. Well, who's doing that? Yeah. This myth of right and wrong, is it, it's helpful to know what's good and what's bad. But to just create this fabrication of what's wrong or to say that what's wrong is— Someone tweeting to like a thousand people that follow him, um, a couple bad words, yeah. a couple poop jokes, or are we systemically perpetuating racism? Are we destroying the world through minerals that we're using to create these phones? Are we pretending that we can fix all of the climate catastrophe by buying $100,000 Tesla cars? Yeah. That's wrong. <laughs> Um, and so I think that the elites will continue to try to use the myth of morality as if it's on their side yeah. when they're the ones perpetuating all the violence. It's yeah. not the leftist radical movements that are violent. It's the inaction, apathy, uh, and political movements of the of the elites that are violent. Yeah, I mean, and I, I guess I'm personally inspired by the works of Tolstoy, who took Christianity into being uh, the kind of the primary seeds of modern non-resistance and pacifism, and uh, you know, the and has kind of came in hand in hand with the Quaker church. Uh, and yeah, I mean, and there is a lot you can do to make people angry and really fight, in other words, without being violent. I mean, Jesus got <laughs> just got executed without doing violence to anybody except turning over a few tables. Well, that's uh, Jesus flips tables. And in that verse, he also lets animals free out of their cages. Yeah. So he's a good animal liberationist. And to me, when like when uh, Occupy Oakland happened or when the Seattle and, and the big movement in 1999 with Seattle, when these things happen or when Trump protests happen around Trump, windows are broken. Windows at multinational corporations that are exploiting the world, exploiting people, based on all of these miserable systems. Yeah. But it's the property destruction that's considered the most violent, visceral thing in the world. And to me, it's like, well, Jesus did property destruction. Jesus said, I'm going to flip over your money table to cause problems so that you, one, will question it, and so that you won't have a table to continue to do this crap into. And so we're going to cause a little violence, violence, I don't even know if that's considered violence, breaking a window. I don't think you should use the word violence. No, it's certainly not violence against people. No. And so that's what's scary to me is that all these right-wing marches, there's been actual deaths. Yeah. There have been human beings murdered by the right wing um, at, these, at the marches, at the Nazi marches. Then all of these people who are doing the school shootings mostly come out as white, angry right wingers. Yeah. But again, it's those people with, in black masks who broke a window who are the villain, villainous, violent, anti American, you know, Jesus haters. And what do people really want when they want a white picket fence? They don't want to look at homeless people. They don't want to see any problems. Are they really more in line with people who say, we need to give up any privilege, give up anything and really create the world where everyone is truly equal? Or are they with the people who say, you know, actually, ethnostates are pretty good, you know, because they, they make my life better. I mean, it's it's very if your only way is saying I want less traffic, not because it's right, but because I just want these people out. <laughs> you know, it's 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 very hard to say it's just not self-serving 
evil actions. I, I uh, posted that Nextdoor is a big website people use in Palo Alto, and I posted an invitation to a couple actions, a Black Lives Matter meeting, a radical reading group, an interfaith prayer meeting. No response, no likes, nothing. Yeah. Uh, someone posted, the little kids will not get off their bikes and walk them under the overpass. There was like 500 comments. Hmm. And these are the most angry. The, people are going back and forth, yelling at each other. Yeah. And so I would sprinkle in like, this is hilarious, y'all. Like, what about black lives? What are we doing to stop? Well, this is about bikes. <laughs> and black kids have bikes, too. And you're just like, what? This is the debates that people are spending so much time and energy on. The reason we've got this system uh, or the reason we can change the system, if, if, if we start spending our time and our energy to think differently and to imagine something different. We can't get our way out of this if we only think about bike underpasses yeah we need to really begin to think critically about society um and and the economy and the ways in which it's socially structured and how we can stop it and how we can end the violence rather than our species being wiped out we should probably end the economic system and social system that's wiping it out i mean what is the american dream the american dream is you know you settle down you find the right area you invest in a home you find the right job and then you just kind of protect your ranch and then that's 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 life i mean and there is we are seeing the fact that in the 20th century, this has always been problematic with, with explicit and de facto segregation. But here, like, we're just running out of opportunity for people to live and people are just being forced out to the streets. And like the American dream in the classic model is dead. But Paul Dalton is the one place is, oh, actually, it's alive. If you are either gifted to stay here like some feudal aristocrat <laughs> or if you have three million to buy a place – the American dream's alive for you. Do we run out the clock on trying to just keep the American dream alive for these people until it's all sucked dry? Well, it's definitely... I'm reminded of a Christmas party I went to in Palo Alto with my neighbors. And the topic of the conversation was, how can we use the police as a weapon? Meaning they were they were sharing stories about when they were standing in their front window, calling the police on black people who were walking by because the hoodie didn't look right, because they looked um, a little different or whatnot. So to me, the American dream in Palo Alto is we've got our houses, and now we can use state violence against people who will never have access to these things, but who we can... we. We tell everyone we love and we care for and we hope that one day they, too, will have a good education. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the question is, you know, short term or long term, I think it's it's correct to say that if, you know, if you've been saying it like interviews from a bunch of kind of like mainstream liberal outlets who kind of say, what's the least I can do to feel good about this and know I'm on the right side? And the right thing is you should never feel complacent. It's always a process. There's always going to be things you can do. But I guess the thing is. You know, what should people feel like? I'm not sure I'm willing to live the perfect life, but what can I do to get started on, you know, <laughs> starting to make things not so awful in every way? For, I mean, I was radicalized in two ways, both through reading and education, but then being in relationships with oppressed people. Yeah. And the scariest thing about Palo Alto is that I can't find enough people who are so marginalized that I can be in a relationship with, meaning they aren't just coming here to work and leave, but they it can exist here. And therefore, to me, there's you can't really have any sort of social change if everyone's kind of like a monolithic same thing. Um, and so to me, one of the most radical things you could do before you even know about participatory politics or anarchism, socialism, or all of the different variants is to just be in relationship with people who are different. And that's the problem with Palo Alto is you literally can't and systemically so to the point where they're creating policies where you can't sleep in your car. Yeah. So, I mean, they're intentionally saying we don't like difference. We don't want difference. And it's scary to us to the point where he has a black shirt that says riot on it. Therefore, he is, you know, needs to be removed from our town. Do you, do you think there's much of a hope that, you know, kind of the religiosity inherent 
in in the left is going to actually kind of either you know expand and actually spread the fact that you will kind of make a, a bigger movement out of the, in, the inherent religious idea that we're all equal and we all deserve a fair, <laughs> there, fair world. There are a couple good movements within the religious left right now that are growing. Like the poor people's economic movement has been a big religious left backing. Problem is it doesn't ever seem to get too radical. Hmm. It doesn't seem to question this. It might want better pay, but yeah. it's not questioning a system that is based on hierarchies of pay and the pay system. Like when the IWW says, as the international workers of the world, we were going to go on strike. We're going on strike not just because we want better pay, but because we want the wage slavery to end. Yeah. And so to me, the liberal Christian movements right now, they're doing great work. Of course, we need better pay. Of course, we want climate regulations. Of course, we want better health care. But I think that if our critique is not saying, but this whole system is broken. And has always been broken. And if we just put Band-Aids on it, it's yeah. not going to make anything better. It, it hasn't historically made anything better. Why would we think it would suddenly start to work? I think one of the – I'll say this. This is one of the types of people I think make me the most upset are the people who they will like in you know England, vote Tory. Around here, they'll, they'll support the power structures. But then they read Karl Marx and they put on a, a pin and they say, oh, I'm on, the, I'm on the side of the proletariat. But they won't do a single thing in their entire – Entire life to ever make anything better. It's just a completely. It's like, oh, let me show that I understand what's wrong. But they are very, very happy with the power structures in their own day to day living. So the last paper I wrote was is decolonizing Christianity possible? One of the most lefty things right now in the academy at large is this idea of decolonization. Um, and there's this Latin scholar, Latin American scholar, Sylvia Rivera Cusiconqui. Hmm. And she she's this, writes a scathing review. Comes from a more marginalized, more oppressed place on the backs, working on the backs of the United States or whatnot, or reverse. Uh, but she says the decolonization movement, though radical, though beautiful, though right on point, they aren't, those scholars aren't participating in social movements. Yeah. So they can decolonize the academy or whatever they think they're doing all they want. But until they're participating on the streets, uh, until they're participating in organizing movements, their, their theories are only so helpful. Yeah. Uh, they are helpful, but they're only so helpful. And to me, that's what Stanford is, and that's what a lot of kind of liberal elitism is here, is we can produce certain cool ideas, but we don't need to actually flesh them out. Maybe that's someone else's job. I mean, you, you almost inherently, to be really driving towards this message, is undermine yourself. You know, you should be knocking your own, like, stool out below you. Because, yeah, you, it's very hard to not be drowning in the inequities and everything. And it's, I think, very easy to say, oh, I'm you know, leading the front. I'm living the mm -hmm. good life. But I think so much suffering has been done by the say, people who convince themselves that, oh, I stand for the proletariat. And, you know, you could be behind something that's never going to really be towards a real leftist message. That's what ate me away about living here. And so when people ask me in these report journalists or whatever asking me why I'm why am I leaving um, is because I just didn't feel like much was possible here because of the attitudes because of the way people interact with um, other people who, people who are different than them I mean that gets one more thing too is like even people who uh, you know are, are standing for disadvantaged populations and what is the future they dream of? And I think the future is no matter where you are, what you are, it means change. It means that the world is going to be going towards a place that in some ways you should find a bit scary. And I think that if you talk about like you're going to San Francisco, San Francisco would say, oh, you know, what is how do we save San Francisco? One is stop gentrification, keep the tech people out. And you could say that's going to help out a lot of people. But is it really 
a change for a future that scares people? No, it's preserving the past. Well, I think that I was reading a book by John Holloway this morning, and he talks about the cracks within capitalism mm. and how capitalism, well, the Zapatistas in Mexico give him this metaphor, but capitalism is like a giant wall. And they say that we not only, we've been throwing stones at this wall since it started, but then when we got really engaged, we started, we'd cut our limbs off and we'd throw our limbs at the wall. Yeah. And then when we have no limbs, we'd have our friends kick us like a soccer ball, our limb, our dead body up against that wall to create a crack. And the moment that crack's created, we won't stop. We will continue to throw everything we can at that wall until it's cracked. And the moment you stop throwing things at that wall, that crack seals back up. Yeah, It's like the they call it the capitalist hydra. When, once you cut off the one limb, it grows back. But you have to continue to poke and press and throw and destroy that wall. Um, and so to me, San Francisco is not going to have this revolutionary moment where, well, it might, but it's probably not going to have a revolutionary moment where all of a sudden things just change. But we're going to have 200,000 cracks that are all being worked on. And uh, he was talking about that quote by Arundhati Roy, I think, where she says, I can hear uh, another world is possible. And on a quiet day, you can hear it breathing. Hmm. And he's saying that through these cracks is where you can hear the breath of that other world is that in the people creating rooftop gardens in the people creating radical egalitarian queerdom of God spaces and the people who are organizing and creating sanctuary uh, against a fascist system. These are the cracks. Um, They aren't holistic solutions, but these are the cracks that we need. And if we can listen to the voice that's breathing through that, honor that, and continue to throw our limbs until we're friends are having to kick our body against the wall just to keep it open, to hell, let's do it. I'm interested in that idea of reform. Kat Brooks is running for mayor in Oakland, Mm. and she posted this status the other day, and it was like, should radical... Because radicals run for mayor and gives like five reasons why that's like the worst idea, why we hate the state, why managing yeah. the police or whatever her role would even be in that way. Like just scary. Yeah. And then she has this big event. All these community members come out that she's been organizing with on the front lines with for so long. And at the end of the post, she says, should a radical run for mayor? And then lists all these wonderful reasons why she's going to yeah. and how to change it, make things more participatory, make things more. But that means it's messy. And that means revolution is not easy and not pure. Uh, there's Zapatistas and Chiang. Mexico, they're autonomous zone. They're totally opposed to the Mexican state, but they ran someone for president uh, through the Indigenous uh, Women's Council, I think. They ran they ran a woman for president, but it was just to get their message out there. It was this quirky way of saying, well, if we can go to each town now that we've raised enough money, we can go get our message out there. But it's this radical separatist anarchist group who's now playing the game of politics. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's this creative, strange, um, visionary way of doing things as opposed to having clean cut uh, pure answers. It's kind of like this weird, messy process. And so in Palo Alto, I was okay with weird and messy. If I would give a radical critique and someone would say, yeah, well, let's let's do this work, um, I would be okay with that, even if it was kind of a liberal response, but I could barely get people to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like how many people do you feel you actually kind of like, you know, tuned on in a good way when you're around? Well, a lot of people say they support the message. A yeah. lot of people say that they support me. Yeah. Maybe like maybe the 30 people specifically who I've interacted with in Palo Alto say that pretty clearly. Mm. Those are the same people, though, that have supported me when I asked them to come to events and didn't show up. Or I asked them to come to Black Lives Matter marches and they didn't show up. Not all of them. Um, but it's interesting how many people support and how many people intellectually agree yeah. with what I was asking. And how how comforting it is to get a text from them. Yet, nonetheless, I know that when it's time for them to open their couch, to pay for my bills, to provide a little food because I don't have a job, well, we're busy this day. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's kind of heartbreaking about Palo Alto. Now, at the same time, there's been a, a smaller group maybe that's been a more radical and that was a little more mutual aid oriented. And so they didn't call and ask. They just came and provided hmm. rather than um, 
call me, Gregory, if you need me. No, they, they know exactly what I need. I don't have a job right now. I don't have resources and I don't have uh, a paycheck. So how can we provide that for you? And that was like this radical move. Yeah. One of the things I did want to say that I didn't get to say yet was um, I like this idea of fully automated luxury communism. Yeah. It's been this like playful idea. That I think there's a book about it now. But it's it's might be appealing to techies in Palo Alto because the idea there is that you go to Safeway and everyone complains who's a radical. Don't go through the the computer line, go through the actual human line where there's a guy being paid fifteen dollars an hour to to work yeah. as opposed to a computer. But this this luxury autonomous fully automated communism is that why why not let all the computers, all this tech stuff do the crappy work, do the bullshit jobs that Graeber calls them. Yeah, yeah. Do all this terrible, and then all of us can have the freedom, just like Palo Alto has the freedom. These elites have the freedom to think and to to think through society. We all have the the ability to be creative, to think how we want it, and to produce and create the society we want. And so it's like there's this myth that there's scarcity out there. The fact that there's 19 million empty homes and 13 million, more than that, 13.5 million uh, homeless people, it's not a matter of scarcity. You can look at the the groceries that are thrown out, the bread that's thrown out by Safeway in their dumpster that simply has a bad date on it, but the bread's perfectly fine. There's more than enough to go around. Yeah. And so I love this idea of abundance, is that we can live within abundance if we want, um, and the computers can all do our jobs. So there are interesting ways where it's like, we don't have to just be anti-tech and totally opposed to the thing. There are creative ways that we can maybe say, well, let's use tech to our benefit. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's a big tragedy of the tech world is you have people who are working in a zero-sum sense to say, yeah, let's fight each other to be the biggest platform for connecting to serve the most ads to people. And I think some of the most, you know, kind of capable people in the world are working there instead of actually solving problems that can make people's lives better. It's a tremendous misallocation of resources for zero-sum nonsense. And yeah, I mean, I think that that should really be used to the fact in a world, and I guess this is a kind of the utopian dream of fully automated. And I mean, I'd say it's complicit with the idea of Henry George of saying, mm-hmm. if you basically say, what is the natural wealth? And if you say like, there's kind of this background chug of things are just working and producing, this should go to everybody. You know, mm-hmm. the, his idea of progress is progress is the giant wedge that separates, you know, the people who become wealthier and the people who are just shoved down into immense mm-hmm. poverty. Mm-hmm. And if you make sure that when there's progress and things actually there's more good stuff, if everybody benefits, if everyone benefits, then you get a lot of people who have the freedom to say, I'm not going to be a wage slave. I can actually choose to leave this job, work on good things. And I think what people work for for themselves. I mean, before I like, I mean, yeah, I, I, I was unemployed and working like just here for volunteer stuff while I was working off like a savings for like a like year and a half when I dropped out of a PhD program. And, and, and I feel like I did like, it's good work to actually work in a community center like mm-hmm. this and do stuff, but people don't have the luxury because people have to work just to survive in this area. I went, I went to the Disney museum up in San Francisco. I've been there. Yeah. And it's a museum. So I thought there'd be cool, quirky things. And what you see is exactly what capitalism in Palo Alto is, is you see all of these incredible movies and cartoons that are Disney's. Yeah. That's not, Disney didn't draw it. There were thousands of these incredible artists who were drawing for him. Yeah. And then his name gets to be all over the thing. And I thought to myself, my God, how heartbreaking would that be that you you drew you draw Cinderella yeah. every time that movie's recreated, every time that movies reproduced and there's a ride it goes straight to one guy yeah. not to the person who created the idea who drew the idea and who made that one guy wealthy and the thought that at the 
the end of the museum, everyone's still just giddy and ready to buy a, something that says Disney on it. I wanted a shirt that had every name of every artist and then maybe Disney somewhere at the very bottom. I mean, it's very funny. Like in the when you talk about the fact that like yeah, it's a massive, massive system and you have all these anonymous animators. But even the early days, Disney screwed over his partner of iWorks, who was the genius. I mean, it's just it started from the beginning, and that is the people that you know kind of. That are celebrated are the people who steal and kind of compete and move to the top. And those I mean, are those are the champions. Jeff, what's his name? Benzo. Uh, ben- Bezos. Bezos. Right? He's known. Amazon's known for being a ruthless, like totally ruthless work environment. Yeah. Uh, and he prides himself in that. He's literally the thought leader of Amazon now. Doesn't have to do much. And literally creates a culture of this like hyper competitive ruthless where people are working extra hours where you know one of my favorite things about tech companies is they'll feed you if you work you know an extra hour in the morning and an extra hour at night yeah and so they will keep you locked in these little like casino like rooms no windows no clocks work 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 uh that's i don't know that's terrifying Yeah, I mean, I guess the the idea of like if everyone just go together and make distributed platforms for getting goods to people, that that is like a good thing. It'd be great if there's all sorts of people contributing to all these big things. And I guess when you see some vestige of I think if you talk about, you know, kind of the utopic goal of the fact that everybody is in the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. then like there is really no competition in that sense. Mm. But I think in the world we live in, the idea is channeling competition. So at least does good things instead of actually just actively making everything worse. Well, one of my favorite anarchists, Kropotkin, writes about the theories of Darwinism and how the idea of competition does work, but on like a small scale. Mm. And when you start to look at animal populations on a larger scale, it's collective work that is much more, um, yeah. those societies are sustainable. And so our society is absolutely working. If by working, you mean continually growing and destroying the species. Yeah. Uh, if, if the destruction of the planet and the species is working for you, then competition is the name of the game. But if you're hoping for actual resilience and sustainability, then that's not getting us anywhere. Yeah, that was Henry George, the first one to complete Spaceship Earth of the idea hmm. that we're all in a spaceship going through the world, and it has resources for us all. It hmm. has, it can provide for us all, but we have to maintain it, we have to care for it, and we have to make sure we distribute it fairly to everybody. Hmm. And I mean, I think we are getting closer. I mean, it's a hundred years ago. Uh, Keynes was saying that, yeah, people are going to be working like seven hours a week mm. <laughs> in a hundred years. And that's not happening. Mm. I mean, there's no reason in like Graeber's bullshit jobs that like we should all feel that we have to work more and more just to get by. And I, I mean, and I think a big thing that I think is important on the left is to say, how do we make cities work for people? Because mm. I feel that, so when you're in San Francisco, what, what, what are you going to be up to when you're up there? Do you know? Um, I don't. So San Francisco is crazy to live in, too. It's super expensive. Yeah. The, the point was not that I'm going to a cheaper place or something, uh, but there is more economic and class diversity. So if I got a, I, there, there's a tenderloin. I could live in the tenderloin and still have access to the whole city um, and have a cheaper apartment or something. I'm participating in gentrification. So, I mean, there's all these problems in this way. Um, but that doesn't exist in Palo Alto at all. There's not a cheaper. I live in the cheapest apartment I can find, and there's not a lot else out there. Um, and there's no public transportation goes up and down. It doesn't get you much in the city like uh, in Palo Alto, like uh, public transportation in the city might, San Francisco. Uh, but I want to do something more direct need based, something where I can see a problem and address it simply so my conscience feels good because I still probably have a little bit of liberalism in me. Yeah. Um, where 
I, abstract ideas, abstract theory. I play with it all day long. I would love to just like house, help, help someone find housing. Yeah. In church world, you sit and you talk about justice all day long and you, you give great sermons about justice, but you never actually pick up the phone and help someone with their housing, or at least in Palo Alto, you, Palo Alto you don't. Yeah. And so to me, I want a job like that, whether it's at a church, whether it's at a nonprofit, whether wherever it is, I want to respond to a direct need. Um, I don't want to th- theologize the direct need. I just want to help the person. Yeah. And in the city, there's a lot more need that's... Um, can be addressed in those ways. Yeah, so we've been talking to Gregory Stevens for the last hour. Uh, so yeah, uh, congr- I guess I uh, hope, 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 congrats for getting out of Palo Alto. <laughs> thank you. And uh, <laughs> you know, good luck for everything in the future. So sweet, thank you. You can find previous episodes of the Henry George Program on the website seethecat.org. Or you can also subscribe on iTunes and other stuff like that. This is a presentation of Casey Shoe Stanford. <laughs>